Leviticus chapter 1 is where we find ourselves this morning. That's where we've landed in our Bible reading guide, if you've been tracking along. And I have to tell you, church, I am incredibly excited for this sermon this morning, as we just sang a while ago, for he dies to save his enemies, that all who draw near may know his peace. And that is going to be abundantly clear on God's providential working in Christ to bring that about through Christ uh, long before he ever sent Christ to be that sacrifice for us. So Leviticus is one of those books that believers love to skip over. All right. It's, it's more often joked about than it is referenced or quoted. Right? Many of you know this to be true, right? It's where Bible reading plans go to die. All right? So everybody starts off that year. They, they know they're familiar with Genesis. Everybody loves the stories of Genesis. If you're reading chronologically, you're like, okay, Job, like it's a long book, but it's got good stuff in there. You press through Job, and then you get through Exodus. Like, wow, God does incredible, amazing things, incredible, memorable stories from Sunday school growing up. And then you hit Leviticus, and you're like, oh, okay. And um, now... Uh, I would posture that more Bible reading plans have fallen apart in Leviticus than in any other book of the Bible, possibly other than Numbers, right? So I want to break us of that this morning, all right? I want to break us of that thought process, that attitude, that, that uh, mindset when it comes to Leviticus. And when you think of Leviticus, you think of just a bunch of uh, blood and sacrifice and just all this stuff going on. It's just repetitive nature and, and all this stuff, right? I want, I want us to see the beauty of God's providence and design in the sacrificial system, okay? Because I want us to be overwhelmed at God's grace of sacrifice. You can see that's what the title of this morning's sermon is. Hopefully you grabbed an outline on the way in or you were handed one. That's going to be our guide through the book of Leviticus this morning, or not the book, but just really just a short portion of chapter one. But uh, I want us to delight in Leviticus. And you'll see this morning why. This morning I have five things Five things that the sacrificial system graciously reveals to us. Now, this is not, obviously, this is not uh, an exhaustive list of things that the sacrificial system illuminates for us, that the Lord uses through the sacrificial system and does. Uh, you can and find more and will find more things that the Spirit reveals in your reading of Leviticus. But these are just simply five of the biggest things that jumped out to me as I read through our text for today. And finally, after we've seen these things revealed in Leviticus, I want us to see why they're just so important in the face of Christ. I want us to marvel at God's providence and faithfulness to fulfill all of these things and more in the work of Christ on the cross. All right? So I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and stand once again for the reading of God's Word as I read for us from today's text, which is Leviticus 1, 1 through 9. Leviticus 1, 1 through 9. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. 
If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall, sit, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come to your word this morning, we come eager to be refreshed, renewed, and uh, to be moved to repentance and moved to obedience. And I pray that you would do that for all of us here today. For any of those that are here today who do not know you, who do not have a relationship with you, who have not been, uh, who have not trusted in the work of Christ on the cross and been covered by that blood, I pray that you would move them to obedience and repentance. I pray, God, for those of us who are here this morning who do know you, who love you and have a thriving relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would move us to obedience and repentance. I pray that you bless the reading of your word this morning, bless the preaching of your word, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, as we approach Leviticus, it's important that we have a proper understanding of where we are uh, in the timeline of events and how Leviticus falls in because it's, it's just so important to understand and see uh, God's working through that and His purposes in revealing and instituting the sacrificial law when He does and how He does. So to this point, we've seen the people rescued from slavery, wandering the desert, brought to Sinai, given the law and instructions for worship and on building the tabernacle. And then this is where we see things kind of go off the rails, right? This more famous part of the story, Moses comes down uh, upon hearing uh, this commotion and Joshua actually hears it first, right? And then they come down and he sees the people worshiping the golden calf and he throws the tablets down, breaks them. Right, So these are all the famous parts of the story. Um, and so Moses goes back up the mountain to, to, with Joshua to meet with the Lord. And he comes back down and, uh, and, and, and then begins to institute what the, the Lord, because he goes to, to make um, atonement on behalf of the people that the Lord might not destroy them. Right? So then we see many of the people put to death for their sins. And this is where we begin to see the cost and the seriousness of sin against the Lord. That part is often forgot in the story of Moses coming down, throwing down the tablets, and then the Lord institutes judgment on the people for their sin. And we begin to realize that the Lord takes this sin thing pretty seriously, especially when it comes to those who are in covenant relationship with him, those who he has uh, bought with a price and brought out of slavery from the Egyptians here, and but for us, from slavery to sin and death, right? And so he takes sin seriously. 
And he places judgment right then and there. And so uh, after this, Moses goes before the Lord to make atonement for their sin. And they, they take up an offering for the tabernacle. And so the Lord uh, tells Moses to go to the people and, and take up an offering to build the tabernacle, which he has given explicit and, and just meticulous instruction to Moses on how it's to be built. So, so why is this part so significant to understanding what we see here in Leviticus? Because the tabernacle will not only be the place where God's presence will dwell, which that in and of itself is reason to say, okay, this is something important happening here. But this will be the literal and symbolic center around which the entire life of the people will turn. Because as, as the tabernacle is built and instituted, it becomes then, the, we see the Lord give meticulous instruction for where each tribe is to camp around the tabernacle. So unless the tabernacle is set up, the people don't know where to orient their own camp. And so it's the literal center of their lives. Physically, spiritually, everything revolves around what happens at the tabernacle. Because that is where God's presence dwells. So as God's presence goes before them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and then God's presence rests in the tabernacle. So this would be their place of worship. This would be the very center of their camp. This would be where sin would be atoned for, as we're about to get to. Thus, we have the instructions of Leviticus on how sin will be dealt with from this moment forward. Why? Because God is saying, like, I know you're going to do stuff like this again. All right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a way for you to deal with that. So we get to the first couple of verses there of our text this morning. We, uh, I'll ask you to read again, starting back in verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. We'll come back to that here in a second. Saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So we're going to pause right there. Notice there the mention of the tent of meeting. All right. So this is the predecessor to the tabernacle, essentially. This tent, of, uh, this tent was set up outside the camp. And this would be the place where the Lord would communicate with Moses. You can see this if you turn just a few pages in your Bible uh, to the left there to Exodus chapter 33. This is uh, off the back of um, all the events following Moses coming down from the mountain. And we see there picking up in verse 7. So uh, Moses informs the people that they're going to get ready to leave uh, Mount Sinai. The people are distraught because of this. They're thinking um, that this is punishment. And so we go to verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. All right, so notice the details here. He pitched it outside the camp and far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. So if you can imagine, everybody's in the camp. This tent is set out 
far, far outside the camp, and not just outside the camp, but far off from the camp. And we'll circle to that here in a little bit. But So as Moses gets up to go out to the tent, everybody's standing and watching. They're watching. Why? Because, verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, so Joshua's right there with Moses this whole time when he go out to these tent meetings with the Lord, a young man would not depart from the tent. So Joshua would stay behind in the tent. He just wanted to remain there, right? Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me again, bring this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So this is the, Moses quoting the Lord to himself, right? So he better be speaking face to face as one speaks to a friend, right? So verse 13, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? And I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. So what happened there in that conversation, Moses, again, would go out to this tent of meeting. Everybody's watching. He goes into the tent. The Lord's presence descends on the tent, and everybody praises and worships God from their own tent, right? So Moses is way outside the camp, and he's conversing with God. And Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, Lord, don't let us leave here. Because he says, it's the, you are the only thing that makes us distinct from where we are going into all these other nations. So please don't let your presence leave us. And he pleads with God. So we go outside to this tent, right? So a few things are made clear to us in this part of the story thus far. The Lord it does not take sin lightly. We've established that. But notice also the purpose of the tabernacle is to be, again, the literal center of everyone's life. However, where again is this tent of meeting located? Outside the camp. And not just outside the camp, but far off. So we have this distinction between the tabernacle being the anointed place, the, the place which God has designed to be the very place where his presence dwells, where his people center around, where they bring themselves to uh, be, have their sins atoned for. But this tent of meeting, because that has not been established yet, and because they're still under the weight of their sin from what they did while Moses was on the mountain, this tent of meeting where God's presence dwells has to be far off, outside the camp, right? Separated from the people. So, what has to happen for God's presence to go from outside and away 
and far off to in the very heart of the people. Sin has to be accounted for. The people have to be made clean before Him. So what does God do? He institutes a system of sacrifice so that His presence can be with His people. And that's the first point there on your outline this morning. So first of the five things is that the sacrificial system graciously reveals God's desire to dwell with His people. Now, some might ask themselves at that. See, the sacrificial system gracefully reveals God's desire to dwell with his people. But why? If God desires to dwell with his people, why not just simply declare them righteous and just do it? Because as God has revealed in his law, as he's shown in the story thus far, he is eternally just. In fact, he sets the standard for what justice is. So... Where we are in our flesh, we may be tempted to shift the standards of justice to fit our convenience. God is not. It was one of the things we discussed last week was God's immutability, His unchanging nature. So not only does He not change, but the standards that He sets do not change. And so as we see throughout Scripture, God is unchanging. He has immutable character. God desires to dwell in your midst. And for you to find your greatest joy in being with Him. So this truth that we see of God desiring to dwell with His people, that applies to His church. That God desires to be and to dwell in your midst and for you to find your greatest joy with Him. But guess what, friends? If you're here this morning and have never had your sins atoned for, then you stand unanointed, and therefore under God's wrath. If we don't understand this, we don't understand why Jesus is necessary. We don't understand why the cross is so crucial. If we don't get this, it's all too easy for us to look at the crucifixion of Christ as some political martyrdom rather than the necessary work to redeem us from our sin. If you have not trusted in the work of Christ on the cross, your sin is unatoned for. And believe you me, it will be atoned for, whether through Christ or that wrath will be brought to bear on you. And this is the reality that Leviticus makes abundantly clear for us, that sin must be atoned for. It has to be paid for. And that's what makes the good news of the gospel so sweet. And this is what makes the grace of God revealed in the sacrificial system so sweet. That just as the law reminds us of God's unchanging nature and his standard, so the sacrificial system reminds us of God's desire for right relationship with his people. So God institutes his law, which his people cannot attain to, because of their sinful flesh, not because of some error in the law, right? That's what Paul makes clear for us. Therefore, because of his love and justice, God institutes a system of sacrifice that his tabernacle and his very presence may be able to dwell in the midst of his people, not outside of the camp and far off. So this is the next point there on your outline, is that the sacrificial system graciously reveals the pervasiveness of sin. Right? Because 
You read Leviticus for just a few verses and you can't help but be confronted by the reality of just how sinful we truly are. This is why the paradigm of sin must be set straight in our minds for us to understand just how good Jesus is to a sinner, right? What do I mean by the the paradigm of sin? Is that we are not sinners because we disobey God's law. We are not sinners because we disobey God's law. We disobey God's law because we are sinners. So that's why you have to have that set straight because otherwise you can make some sort of caricature of the law. You can make a caricature of your sin. You can begin to think that the sin is simply the bad things that you do. But you do those bad things because you are bad. And that's the essential understanding that has to be set right. You see the difference there. One statement looks at sin as the deeds that make us bad. The latter looks at our own hearts and says, I am a sinner through and through. You want to be overwhelmed at the gory reality of your sinful heart? You might be saying, nope, no thank you, right? But if you want to be overwhelmed at the gory reality of your sinful heart, read Leviticus. The sacrificial system makes sin an unavoidable, gruesome reality for us. As we keep reading there, verse 3. So he tells, speak to the people of Israel, say to them, you bring an offering. So he's given instruction on on what to do when you bring this offering. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, so he begins this with burnt offering, but he gives, goes on to give five types of offerings, but keep reading. He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So this is probably one of the more important provisions revealed by the sacrificial system. And it's that next point there on your outline, that provision, the sacrificial system graciously reveals the provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. A substitutionary sacrifice. So under this system, which God graciously provides, He allows for substitutionary sacrifice. Why is that such an important allotment made by God? Why did I just repeat that time and time again? You might be asking yourself, like, what's he getting at here? Because the one who deserves to die, the one who has committed the sin, which is being atoned for, doesn't have to. Rather, the Lord allows for a substitute. In this case, it's whatever male from the herd is being brought without spot or blemish, being brought that this animal is the substitute for the payment of sin. The innocent and unblemished in place of the one totally guilty and stained by sinfulness. It is totally by God's grace that he allows anyone to be in right relationship with him. Unless he makes a way, the way is shut. And this is the grace of substitutionary sacrifice, the innocent for the guilty. And this is the grace of the cross. You don't have to sit under the weight of your sin. Those of us who have realized this grace in the face of Jesus ought to have a constant posture of humility, knowing not just the debt has been paid, 
but that God alone made a way for the debt to be paid, and he provided the payment. And this is why those who are not under the blood of Christ ought to sit in fear. You continue reading verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. So we'll pause right there. We'll come back. But this next reality for us in the sacrificial system is perhaps the most obvious. But sometimes it's good to be reminded of what we think as obvious, right? And that is that sin brings death. The sacrificial system graciously reveals that sin brings death. Or rather, reminds us that sin brings death. The people had just learned that the hard way. As the Lord puts to death several in judgment of what happened while Moses was up on the mountain. So the sacrificial system provides a gruesome, tangible depiction of the reality of sin. It's costly, it's bloody, and it's all-encompassing. Thus, we see the bloody scene of Jesus' crucifixion. As the offering was required to be laid out on the wood, having been flayed open, blood thrown everywhere to sanctify and anoint, offered up to the Lord. So we see Christ flayed open, laid out on the wood of the cross, and his blood covers us that we might be redeemed, sanctified, and anointed. And this, again, is why if you don't get this, you don't get how good the cross is. Because look there at the last half of verse 9. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. So every bit of that sacrifice burned up, right? There's nothing missing. As a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, what about anything that you just read says pleasing aroma, right? Because we're not talking about cooking this offering to perfection so that it tastes good. We're talking about burning it up, every bit of it. But it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So what's interesting about this phrase that the the Lord uses here in his instruction to Moses is that the first time we see it used is in Genesis 8, 21. Right? The flood has subsided. Noah and his family get off the ark. Noah builds an altar to the Lord and offers a sacrifice out of worship and thanksgiving. And this is what we read in Genesis 8.21. If you just want to make a note of that off to the side or something, feel welcome to. But Genesis 8.21, we see, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we see the first time this is used, this analogy, this, this picture of this, the, the smell of this offering going up to the Lord, being a pleasing and sac- aroma, 
of sacrifice. But Paul, Paul goes on to use this analogy of the aroma of sacrifice in reference to our sanctified walk in Christ. If you want to make a note, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2, where we see Paul, uh, after having come off the second half there of Ephesians 4, where he's talking about our new life in Christ, that uh, we, have, we are to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, is what he says there in chapter 4. And so then he says, Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So there we have the offering of Christ being used and referred to as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says this, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So, what we see here. Paul's analogies of using this, this analogy, using the same language of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What is pleasing is not the smell of the altar itself, but what is being accomplished by the sacrifice is the making of his people holy. That is why this offering is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So as the aroma of Christ's sacrifice is graciously passed on to us, as we walk in our newness of life, we are continually then offering up our lives as a living sacrifice to God, a pleasing aroma to Him. So Christ is the sacrifice which makes us a pleasing aroma, and then we continue that pleasing aroma as we walk in newness of life. And the next point there on your outline goes to this point of us walking in holiness, us being sanctified, and that is that the sacrificial system graciously reveals the holy, that holiness requires sacrifice. That we can't be made holy unless a sacrifice is given. In order for us to become holy, in order for us to be a pleasing aroma, sacrifice has to be given. And Christ has made that sacrifice once for all so that all those who trust in His work can now be a pleasing aroma before the Lord. And this is why Paul also, multiple times in the New Testament, uses the analogy of us as the temple of God. Of course, the tabernacle being the predecessor to the temple, that we have been consecrated, anointed, sanctified by the blood of Christ. So just as the pillar of cloud would rest and God's presence would rest on that tent of meeting and then rest on the tabernacle, now His Spirit dwells in us who have been washed by the blood of Christ and made pleasing unto Him. Because now He sits at the right hand of God the Father as the atoning sacrifice and the conqueror of our sin And as the great high priest, 
He sits making atonement for us, resides, resides over us. So we are all tabernacles of Christ, His Spirit residing in us. And this is so beautifully displayed. I'll ask you to turn now in your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, where the author of Hebrews elaborates for us this work accomplished by Christ and what exactly it means and how it goes along with God's providential purposes in the sacrificial system. So start there in uh, Hebrews chapter 4. We'll start in verse 14. So uh, in this section of Hebrews, this is before we get to... um, the author of Hebrews, walking through um, exactly how Jesus is. He's walked through how Jesus is greater than Moses, and, he, and he's going to continue on in that. So in the continuation of that, we have Jesus greater than the law, right? So law was given under Moses, and so this is in continuation of Jesus being greater than Moses. And he brings here, because as the law is instituted, so is the sacrificial system, so is the priesthood, and so all of this stuff is coming under Moses. And the author of Hebrews here wants us to understand how Jesus resides over all of that and how he has perfectly fulfilled that. So verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So we don't have a high priest who's simply self-righteously residing over our sacrifices, who who we have to bring a bull or a goat or, or some sort of offering to. We don't have one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what I want you to look back there at verse 3 of Hebrews 4. Because as Paul, as I keep saying Paul, as the author of Hebrews uh, is elaborating here, he says this before we get to what we just read. Chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. So he's talking about the Sabbath rest. Entering that rest uh, is what happens as we are under the blood of Christ. And he says, he quotes there from Psalm 95. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What the author of Hebrews here is elaborating for us is that the works of Christ were, in essence, in place from the foundation of the world. That as God was instituting that sacrificial system, And we've established God is immutable. He does not change. He does not change his standards. That he was setting in place the very standard by which he would send his son to die for us. And so this was by means always meant to be a temporary system. 
And it was only temporary until the most perfect sacrifice was offered. And this is what makes reading Leviticus and the institution of the sacrificial system so worthwhile. Because every bit of the sacrificial system that we read in Leviticus is perfected through and in Christ. And here's what I, I mean by that. Is that the sacrificial system is made perfect through the sacrifice of Christ, whereas his death is once for all. And it is perfected in the resurrection of Christ because now he sits at the right hand of God the Father as the atoning sacrifice and conqueror of our sin and as the great high priest making atonement on our behalf for eternity. So not only was he the sacrifice, but now he is our high priest who is before the presence of God the Father because that's what the sacrificial system outlines for us, that the priest would accept the sacrifice and then go into the presence of God, bringing before God that this sin had been atoned for. Well, now Christ sits, having been both sacrificed and now high priest, forever presenting that atonement for us to God the Father. And the author of Hebrews goes on to elaborate just that in chapter 9. If you'll turn to chapter 9 of Hebrews, we see how we receive redemption through the blood of Christ. Starting in verse 12, so, or verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, right? So now we have... We had the tent of meeting, we had the tabernacle, we had the temple, but now Christ has entered through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And the final point there on your outline, Christ is both our offering and high priest. That in Christ, we have one who satisfied the just system of atonement put in place by God the Father, and who makes intercession for us before the Father, not in a tent or a tabernacle or a temple, but in the very throne room of heaven. Four, I'm going to walk back through all five of the things that we saw there in the sacrificial system. For Christ more perfectly reveals God's desire to dwell with his people. For through the work of Christ, we can be made right with God. For Christ more perfectly reveals the pervasiveness of sin and the death of sin. For Christ shows the lengths of God's providence to deal with sin, and through death, he defeated death. For Christ more perfectly reveals that he was the perfect substitutionary sacrifice, the innocent for the guilty. 
the clean for the stained, which was required to make us holy, to sanctify us. How much more if the ashes of a heifer sanctify, how much more will the blood of Christ? So please, church, I don't look at Leviticus the same ever again. It is just as crucial for us to understand Leviticus because it is through our understanding of Leviticus and the laws offered there that we understand the good news of the gospel. So let's, let me pray for us this morning. God, as we rejoice in the eternal nature of your word, as we rejoice in your immutable, unchanging standards and character. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here that is standing under the weight of their own sin, having not trusted in the work of Christ on the cross and been covered by that blood that was poured out, I pray that you would move their hearts to repentance, draw them to yourself and help them to walk forward in obedience and sanctification from here on. I also pray, Lord, that for those of us here who know your name, who have trusted in the work of Christ on the cross, continuously, Lord, please bring us to our knees at your providential working from the foundations, setting in place the very system that you would there used to make atonement through Christ for us. Bring us in all, daily, constantly, at what you have accomplished for us in Christ. Let us never grow tired of it. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.